Let's go into uh, Luke 17, please. Uh, Chapter 17, verse 1. And please read along. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. To the apostles, the Lord, uh, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said back to them, if you had a faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Which of you then having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly close yourself and, and serve me and eat when I eat and drink. And then afterward, you may eat and drink. He does not think the slave, he does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Pray, Father God, I pray that you would illuminate this word for us, open our hearts to a better understanding, open our minds to a good, strong relationship with you. Father, we're thankful people. We're thankful for your word and the guidance that it gives our lives. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I start preparing for worship on Monday. I have a list of all the scripture verses that Gunner's going to preach all throughout the year. And I go there Monday after I get home from work. And I copy it onto a Microsoft Word document. And then I pray over it a few times. And then I start to pick the music to get ready for worship on Sunday hoping that the music will intertwine itself, and it usually does. The, the Holy Spirit leads me pretty well, I think. Um, and and that's usually my preparation. And we come on Wednesday night, and we rehearse, and, and then we're ready for Sunday. And then Gunnar emailed me on Monday, on Thursday and said, hey, I, I want you to preach. So I was familiar with the, with the text, but not real familiar with the text, if you know what I mean. You read it a couple of times, but you're not like studying it. So I said, okay, I can do that. And I started to look at this on Thursday evening. It looks like, just at first glance, a several disjointed things. But then when I started to study it, I started to see that it really was like a plan for life. That, that it's not disjointed at all. That, there, that there's a couple of different stories in there. But they're all trying to guide us towards something, some lessons for life, some uh, some principles. And I found, believe it or not, in those in those ten verses, I found seven different principles for life. And if you think about them, um, they really do encompass a lot of what we uh, what we what we do and who we are. And. Uh, Chapter, uh, chapter 17, verse 1 starts out. He says to his disciples, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. But woe to you 
through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he, than he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, Gunnar went to Israel last year. I went in 19, I think it was 90, it's either 96 or 90, I think it was 90, 98. Um, I was on a church trip. I uh, was a youth pastor at a church in Vista. And we had a program at our church where, you know, if you were a college student or if you were a staff member at the church, you could go, it was, the price was like 2,000 bucks and you got like half of it off. So you could go to Israel for 10 days for like 1,000 bucks, which was pretty good. So I went, I took three youth with me. And uh, there was about 30 of us on this trip all together. And one of the places we went to while we were on our trip is Masada. And you go there and you can, you know, be the hardy man and walk up the snake trail. Or you can do what I did and pay the eight bucks and ride the cable car up. And you're touring around Masada and you're listening to your tour guide tell you about all the different aspects of Masada. And one of the places you're, you're at is you're on the wall looking down. And you can see the Dead Sea, and up the up the Dead Sea, up the coast of the Dead Sea is Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And they tell you that during the time of the siege of Masada, the 10th Roman Legion marched down along the Dead Sea, and these soldiers were doing what soldiers do. They came down, and they were getting ready to siege Masada, and it was going to take like three years, and... And, you know, they did all kinds of, they even built this big ramp so they could actually scale the wall of Masada. They, they built a ramp literally up the side of this precipice uh, so that the, the soldiers could march up there. But they were doing what soldiers do. They got bored. And they were trying to amuse themselves. Well, the Roman professional soldiers have squires like the old knights did. They have people that take care of them. They have people that cook for them. They have people that carry their extra weapons. They have, they have logistics people that, that march along with them. They're not the fighting soldiers. The professional guys are the fighting soldiers. But some of these guys are cooks. Well, um, Gunnar talked about the millstone last week, and usually they're a big, giant stone. But when these soldiers would go on march on, on, a, on, a, on a siege, they would carry these smaller stones, that were uh, 10, 15, 20 pounds. They're, they're about that thick. They got a hole in the center. There's like a wheel. And they put a stick through it. And they carry it in a wagon, in the kitchen wagon. And they would, there's, a, there's a larger one on the bottom. And they would put the flour on and they wheel this thing around. And, and it grinds up the flour for them. Because they, they do bread every day. Because there's no preservatives or anything. And the Dead Sea is the lowest place. It's 1,600 feet below sea level. And it's the saltiest water on the planet. If you drank a 16-ounce glass, a 16-ounce tumbler of water from the Dead Sea, it would kill you. It's that salty. It would, you would be dehydrated so bad that you couldn't recover from it. Um, it's literally poisonous. It's great for your skin, by the way, ladies. Um, if you go, and the, the cool part of it is, is if you go swimming in it, which we did get the opportunity, it kind of feels oily. But if you normally, when you're swimming in a lake or a pond, you have to tread water. But if you stop moving in the Dead Sea, you float to the surface. It's so salty that your body, that the water is so dense that your body is less dense and you're buoyant like an ice cube. You float to the top. Well, these Roman soldiers get bored. So they would take a slave and they would tie these millstones around their body and throw them into the Dead Sea and make bets 
on how many stones it would take to drown them. So, you know, we, we all, we dramatize the Romans. You know, we, oh, the Romans are so wonderful. And their society was, their, their professional soldiers were pretty brutal. Were pretty brutal. So this, this story about, you know, Jesus using this example for us comes from that, from those stories. These, these poor slaves that are being thrown into the Dead Sea with millstones around them and the Roman soldiers betting on how much it would take to drown them. He said it would be better for you to be thrown in the sea like that than it would be to cause one of these new Christians to stumble. Don't be the cause. It's not your job to cause them to stumble. It's your job to build them up. As I studied more and more on this uh, Thursday night and then through Friday and then into Saturday, um, you know, one of the things that you do when you're or when you're preparing to, to do a, a talk like this is is you you pray about things and you read it and study it and stuff just starts to starts to bubble towards the surface after a while. And I saw seven like life lessons or principles that came out of this. And the first one is the principle of reality. Reality, why? Because people are going to stumble. People are people. They have sin. They're going to make mistakes. None of us is perfect. You know, one of the least perfect people you could ever meet is me. You can't even imagine the stuff I've done in my life and how imperfect I am. If, if I were a mirror, I would be one of those hammered up surfaces that you see made out of metal. I would shine maybe a little bit, but not very much. And I'd be all full of these little dimples from where the hammer's beating it up, trying to get it right. But I'm not right. We've only got one perfect mirror, and that's Christ. So he talks about this principle of reality. Reality that people are going to stumble but that we should not be the cause. It's a warning. It says, look, the reality is people are going to stumble, but don't you be the cause. Don't you be the cause. So if you are the cause, then it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with the millstone around your neck. That's not good. That's a good warning for us. The second principle is the principle of responsibility. That we need to take responsibility. It's inevitable that stumbling blocks should come, but woe to him through whom they come. The responsibility principle flows from that reality principle that in the real world, actions have consequences. Hey, look, as a middle school teacher, I can tell you. Middle school kids, a lot of times, don't see the consequences. I get parents come in. Why do I have to tell little Susie or little Johnny a thousand times that they've done something wrong? Because they don't see the consequences. The, 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 the physio, physiological reason is the, their ability to, to formulate abstract thought in their brain hasn't been, hasn't been created yet. That's still developing them. And as those hormones through puberty fire off, all that you know, wonderful time of puberty when voices are changing and bodies are changing, those connections are being made in their brain. So that all of a sudden they get abstract thought. 
Now, they can do simple abstract thought before that, but not really complicated abstract thought. They really don't see the future. They can't. But then all of a sudden, it starts to work for them. And as they get older, they start seeing that there are consequences to some of their actions. We're adults. We don't need to be told that. We know. You go too fast in your car. There's a man in a little black and white car that's going to pull up behind you with flashing lights, and he's going to fill in the consequences for you're going too fast in your car. You break the law. You go to court. You pay a fine. You break God's law. There's a, there's a big consequence for that. But the cool part is, is there's repentance. And we're going to get there. So, you know, it's like my, my middle schoolers. I gave, I gave three tests this last week. And Friday was the eighth grade test, which is like they're the big guys in my school. They're, 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 they're the, oldest, the oldest grade in my school. And they come in. And they sit down, take their test, and one of them got a C. <gasps> My mother's going to kill me. The day before the test, we have, in, in the teaching materials that they give to us so that we can teach the kids, we get test form A and test form B. I take test form B, and I use it as our review test the day before. It's got different questions, same kind of questions with different numbers. So, you know, question number 16 is a story problem on test A, the test that they're actually going to get graded on. But it's also a story problem on test B, which is different numbers, kind of different story problem, but similar, same, pro- same concept. So they actually get to practice the test the day before. And I got to see, didn't you study? No, I went to my friend's house and we played video games all night. Hmm. Guess what? There's consequences to your actions. Well, is there anything I can do to help my C get better? Um, Gee, uh, no. (laughs) Remember on the first day of school and back to school night when I talked to your parents and I said, you know, what you get is what you get. But, but, but. There's consequences to our actions. And and, and, and fortunately, I think the, the, the earlier in life we learn that, the easier our life gets as we get older. So this principle of responsibility, we need to know, we need to know that our actions do have consequences. We need to know that when we do something wrong, that, that, that there's a, that there's a, uh, that there's going to be some correction. Now, building on that even, so we've got reality and responsibility. The next thing that comes along out of this is rebuke. Rebuke. It says, be on guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Now, I want to define rebuke for you. I know you hear that word a lot. It's one of those Christian like jargon words. It says, to rebuke means to reprove. To go tell someone of their fault. Seek an explanation of it. Acquaint them with what has been the effect of their conduct. State your own personal feelings, excuse me, and that so that that person can acknowledge their error and change. That's what rebuke means. Now, 
I'm not saying go get in somebody's face when you see that they're doing something wrong. Because one of the things that you need to make sure of when you're rebuking somebody is you're not the person in the glass house throwing stones. I like to say that when you go to rebuke somebody, you carry this with you. You carry the scriptures with you. And, and you let the scriptures explain what actions the person was doing wrong. You, you go in here and you say, you know, I, I'm not judging you. But the scriptures say that what you were doing was incorrect. That this is what you should be doing. You let the scriptures do the talking for you. That way you're not accusing. You're, you're, you're allowing the scriptures. You're, you're using the scriptures to show someone where they're not walking with God. That way you keep your own personal feelings out of it. And I think there's even one spot in the scripture where it says take a brother with you when you do that. So that you keep yourself above reproach. You know, you're not judging them. You're trying to correct them for a mistake that they're making. The principle of rebuke. So now we've got reality, responsibility, and rebuke. What comes next? Repentance. Right? It's time to repent. If he sins against you seven times and turns to you say seven times saying, I repent... You should forgive him. You should forgive him. Hold yourself to the highest standard. Hold everybody else to the lowest standard. Forgive, 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 forgive. Our, that's counter to what our society says. If you do something to me, I'm going to get revenge. I'm going to get back. That's only fair. Boy, let me tell you, as a, as a school teacher... You can't, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard, that's not fair. That's not fair. We don't want what's fair. You look at the scales, you, you know, they, they show uh, lady justice, right? Blindfolded, holding a scale, right? We don't want to be measured on that scale because God's on this end and we're on the other end. And you put creation and then grace and mercy on God's end of the scale. <laughs> There's nothing that we can do to balance that scale. Nothing. We could do a million things and it wouldn't be enough to even move it just a little bit. We don't balance that scale. We don't deserve anything. God created us. He deserves all, everything. He deserves all the worship. He takes us when we're all broken and mangled and, and beat up and, and, and bad and sinful. And he says, here's mercy and grace. Here's mercy and grace. Oh, I'm so sorry, Lord. I'm so sorry, Lord. In Greek, the word for repentance is metanoia. And it means to change, a change of mind leading to a change in behavior. So when someone repents, they go, oh, when you rebuke them using the scriptures, they go, oh, maybe they didn't even know they were doing something wrong. You show it to them in the scriptures and say, look, brother or sister, it says in the scriptures you shouldn't be doing that. Here, right here. This isn't me judging you. I'm just, 
I want to show you this in the scriptures. It says we should be doing this here. And they go, I didn't even know. They change their mind and they change their behavior. They repent. If he repents, forgive him. Time and time and time and time and time and time and time again. Seven times 70. You know. Repentance doesn't atone for sin. Only blood can atone for sin. But we've got that. We've got that covered. Actually, we don't have it covered. Jesus has it covered for us. He made the blood sacrifice on the altar. The altar of the cross. The blood sacrifice for every sin that we've ever committed and ever will commit. All we have to do is repent to claim it. The second principle I see out of that, and this comes to our Gideon friends, is restoration. The principle of restoration applies mainly to the people offended, the one granting forgiveness. Restoration is the ultimate goal of rebuke. You want to try to restore them back to their relationship with Christ. That's what you're trying to do. All the work of all of this stuff, the reality of the situation, Everything else, the responsibility, the rebuke, the repent, you're trying to get someone back. Those Gideon Bibles go everywhere in the world. 80 million plus Bibles last year. And every dollar that's donated to the Gideons goes to the Bibles. All of the administrative costs and all the rest of that stuff is funded by the Gideons themselves their dues, and all the rest of that stuff. If you donate money to the Gideons, that's going to Bibles, and those Bibles are going somewhere in the world. I went on a cruise to Alaska with my wife a few years ago, and it was amazing. We get on the ship, we're on Norwegian cruise lines, we get there in Seattle, we get loaded in, we unpack our stuff, I pull the drawer open, to put my stuff in the dresser that's in that's in the in the cabin, and what's there? A Gideon Bible, airplanes, hospital rooms, hotel rooms. They even have these little testaments. They stand on the sidewalk outside public school because they're not allowed on the grounds of the public school. They stand on the sidewalk in the public area where nobody can chase them away. And they hand out testaments at the end of the school day when the kids are getting out of school, going home. And they're standing out there handing kids. And sometimes the kids take and look at them, rip them up, throw them in the trash. But there's going to be that one kid that gets that Bible. The whole Gideon's ministry is about restoration. About getting a Bible in the hands of the one person that needs it. If they give out 80 million Bibles... And they save one life, it's worth every penny. How do the apostles, the guys that walk around with Jesus all the time for this, for this three years of his public ministry, how do they respond to this? Increase our faith, Lord. Because they realize they cannot do it without him. That's how they respond. 
The duty of forgiving offenses seemed to be so difficult to them that they strongly felt the need to increase their faith. And they went to Jesus and they said, Look, only you have the power to increase our faith. Please increase our faith. Know that we as Christians, if you're a brand new Christian that just accepted Christ, or if you're a pastor or a bishop or the Pope, know that your faith can be increased. And that Jesus is the only one that can do it. The duty of forgiving offenses was one of the most difficult duties in the Christian religion. It was so contrary to their natural feelings that it implied an elevation of such petty feelings of malice and revenge, and it's so contrary to the received maxims of the world. We don't want to forgive people. We want to get revenge. I don't want to forgive people. You you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. Not me, really. There was a time in my life, though, when I was like that. There was a time in my life when I was a lot like Paul, actually, before he got his name changed. I was a lot like Saul of Tarsus. If you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. And if you're a Christian, I'm going to persecute you. I have guys that work for me, that were Christians, that wanted time off during lunches so that they could go to Bible studies. And I told them, no, i got work for you to do. If you're going to take time and go somewhere for lunch for a Bible study, i got work for you. And I didn't let them go. Boy, I look at that now and I feel so stupid. And I feel so hurt. Because I hurt them. I realized, you know, just they were just trying to make themselves better. Just trying to strengthen their relationship with Christ. I look at that now and, man, if I could find them and tell them just how sorry I am. So increase our faith. The apostles go to Jesus. And Jesus says, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could... Say to this mulberry tree here, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and that mulberry tree would obey you. Now, I don't know if you've seen a mustard seed before, but they're tiny. They're about about one millimeter in diameter. That's pretty small. You know, the, the ruler, you know, you got the inches on one side, it's got them all little other marks on the other side, the millimeters and centimeters and stuff, the stuff they use in Europe, Okay. Two of them tiny little marks. In between two of them, that's one millimeter. That's tiny. But that one little mustard seed grows into a plant that's kind of weedy and about 40 inches tall and next to impossible to kill. Okay? That's a mustard plant. And they're pretty hardy stuff. They don't don't take much love and care. They need a little bit of moisture and and a little bit of sunlight. And they're on their way. They they germinate in about seven days. And they're pretty hard to kill. He says, if we have the the faith like that tiny little seed, we only need a little tiny bit, just a little bit, we could tell a mulberry tree. Now, I'm going to give you a little science lesson in trees. Deciduous trees, trees where the leaves fall off. Okay, Mulberry tree is one of those. It's not an evergreen. If you look at the crown of a tree, the general rule of thumb is that the crown of the tree, which is the area of the branches where the leaves all are, if you take a look at the size of the crown of the tree, the root ball supporting that tree is identical to the size of the crown. 
So if you've got a crown that's 60, 80 feet across, then you've got 60, 80 feet of root. Well, mulberry tree also has a tap root. Okay, that goes pretty deep in the ground. So if you can dig up a mulberry tree, if you can tell a mulberry tree to get up and leave, if you can uproot one, you're doing something. It says if you have just this little tiny bit of faith, you can do some amazingly mighty things. It doesn't require much. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. And you can do something that seems impossible. It seems impossible. You only need a little bit of faith. A little bit of faith. Mulberry trees. Amazing stuff. Could I do that? I don't know. Maybe with the right amount of digging gear and, and a crane and, you know. It says, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. That little tiny bit of faith can make you do mighty things. The next one is reliance. The next, the next, the, the next life lesson we get out of this is reliance. Reliance on Christ. The apostles were coming to them and said, increase our faith. Reliance on Christ by grace and through faith. We have to rely on Christ. We can do anything. We can endure anything through him who gives us faith. And gives us strength. A life of consistent repentance repentance towards those who have, we have wronged and forgiveness toward those who have wronged us is not something that comes natural to us. It cuts across the grain of our society. The disciples were not wrong saying increase our faith. Because that's not an easy thing to do. To, to, uh, to forgive somebody else. And then we move on to the last part of the story. But which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come into the field, in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? This parable appears to be spoken. This looks like it's totally disconnected from the rest. This is, but will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly close yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you get to eat? We're going to have table communion here in in just a few minutes. And this story talks about the slave coming in. It's, It's talking about basically what we think we deserve as a reward. What is our proper reward for being in service? Do we deserve anything? Well, we talked about the, the, the scales being balanced. We're not balanced. We don't deserve anything. Do we, get, do we deserve to sit at Christ's table? No. And yet he invites us there. Not because of something that we've done. Not because of some just amazingly wonderful you know, person that we are, that, that, God, that God owes us something. We've done something for God that he owes us something. Because our society is like that too. And if I come over and I help Larry clean, it up, clean out his garage, when it comes time for me to clean out my garage, you better come over and help me. Yeah, we're into that payback thing. We do something for somebody, we want to get payback. We, we, we think we you know, should get something in return for it. 
Jesus is speaking against that totally right here. You don't do things for God because you think you're going to get God into a position where he owes you something. That's not ever going to happen. That scale's never going to be balanced. You're never going to create a deficit on God's side where he owes you something. He says, we have, we have conferred no favor. We have merited nothing. We have not benefited God in any way or laid him under any kind of obligation. If he rewards us, it will be a matter of unmerited favor. It's like that grace and mercy. You're giving grace a gift that you don't deserve. Or mercy. You're not given a punishment that you do deserve. This reward, this table, we sit at this table as a reward for our faith alone. Our faith alone. Not for our works. We can't do enough to earn a seat at this table. God grants us a seat at this table. We don't deserve any reward. It is simply not possible for us to be redeemed by the infinitely precious blood of Christ. These seven principles are essential for a faithful Christian life. Reality, responsibility, rebuke, repentance, restoration, reliance, and reward. Wow, a lot of R's there. I think I did it on purpose. They lead us to a place that is blessed. A place where we combine humility the humility of being unworthy who've only done their duty. We've been the best Christian that we could possibly be. Awed by the praise for undeserved grace. Who do we think we are? We're sinners. Saved by grace. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you've given us this word. Father, I pray for the rest of our time together this morning for communion. Open our hearts. Let us show you that we love you. Father, we're thankful for showing us that reality of responsibility, the rebuke, the repentance, the restoration, the reliance, and the reward. Father, these seven R's that can help us to be the best that we can be. Father, that's all you desire for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.